appreciate all of your prayers and encouragement and very grateful for the wonderful team we have that God has given to help because I'm, I'm so thankful we have men like Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and Mr. Crockett and Mr. Apartin and, and all the other ministers. I'd better stop there because then I'll be leaving someone out. But we have a lot of very, very fine ministers all across the United States and around the world. And the overwhelming majority are very, very loyal and very, very dedicated. And most of, none of them are bad in that sense. But you know what I mean. Some are more zealous than others. We're human. Uh, I guess you figured that out by now. But anyway, we, we do the best we can. And we are, I think, have a greater degree of love and unity and loyalty uh, in the church, in the living church of God, than I have seen in the 60 years that I've been in the church, except the very first five or seven years when I was in the church, when it was just Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Armstrong and he was the father figure, and she was the mother figure for all of us. Then we had that same unity. But by the late 50s and early 60s, it was a little bit different. Nothing terrible, but those of us who were around could see uh, human nature as we got bigger and more administrative and more people competing for more jobs and more stuff. Because we had human nature, but we do have a great deal of unity and loyalty now. And I am grateful. I want to thank all of our men for that. And I really am very, very thankful to God for that in every way. Well, brethren, two weeks ago, I spoke on the great commandment. And all of you know what that is. Most of you were here. But I don't want to repeat that sermon. I'd be tempted to give you part of it. But I want to have time for the sermon I have today. And I'll be reading that to you here in a moment. But today... I want to cover the other great commandment because they do go together. Turn with me, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 22. This is Matthew chapter 22 in your Bible. Jesus was asked a question by a lawyer testing him, one of the Jewish scribal lawyers, not a worldly lawyer. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said... To him, you shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And as I explained a couple of weeks ago, brethren, I want to repeat a tiny bit. You can't really keep the other commandments. You cannot unless you obey that first commandment. If you don't love God with all your heart, and if you don't know who the true God is then he's not going to be there with his Holy Spirit to help you keep the other commandments. And you cannot relate to other human beings, as I'll explain, unless you first know who God is and what his purpose is. So it seems strange to some Protestants, I'm sure, and Catholics that in the Old Testament, God had laws. Of course, it was a civil nation, and they were carnal, and he had physical carnal penalties, which he does not have now, as you know. But if they tried to preach about another God or talk about another religion and try to bring that in, God would have them stoned to death. Why did God put breaking the first commandment and having another God right up there with murder? Why? If people are able to be led away from God, it leads to personal hatred, murder, confusion, idolatry, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and finally burning your own children in the fire, which they were doing back there, and which we're doing in a different way, with these some 45 million abortions in recent years, killing our unborn children, not by the thousands, 
but by the millions because people don't know God and they do not fear the true God of the Bible. That's why these things are underway. That's why it's so important to obey the first commandment and to have an awe of that God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the awe of that God. And you must love and worship and adore that great God more than anything else. And know He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. Every breath you have came from Him. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. All power comes from Him. All wisdom comes from Him. And you worship and adore Him above everything else. And you fear Him in that sense, not like a monster, but the awesome God. And you know He's there. And in Him we live and move and have our being. So you have to have that attitude in order to obey the other commandments. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And that's why God put that first. That's why that's the great commandment. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As I said last week or two weeks ago, lots of people I talked in the world, and I've talked, I suppose, to hundreds through the years because of being on the baptizing tours and visiting new people that are not converted and so on. They, well, you know, we love the Lord and we try to love our neighbors ourselves, keep the golden rule, and that's kind of all we have to do. Isn't that good enough or they have that attitude? No, it's not because they don't know which Lord to love. They don't know who He is or anything about Him. And some of them don't even mention that. They just mention we, we practice the golden rule. They just leave the first part completely out. We just try to be good and practice the golden rule. What is the golden rule? Love your neighbors yourself. Well, they don't know how to obey that because they don't understand the Bible because they don't understand the first commandment and all that the first commandment implies. So they cannot love them, their neighbor as themselves. So you've got to love the God first, and then you'll know how to obey the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's very important to realize how these great commandments fit together. Back in Genesis chapter 1, get a little background here, which you all are familiar with, and I often use this in other contexts, but Genesis chapter 1 and beginning in verse 26. God said, and here is God the Father and the one who became the Logos, the spokesman, which Dr. Scott Winnell was speaking about, speaking together. God said, let us, God the Father and God the Word, the spokesman who emptied himself and became Jesus the Christ, said, let us, not me, there were two of them, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. So they were given government right away, governmental responsibility over the fish, birds, cattle, everything. So God created man, meaning mankind, using man in the generic sense, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All of us, male and female, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, are created in God's image. And if you fully understand that, that's all part of understanding the first commandment in a general sense, but this aspect can help you understand better the second commandment. Why should you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, you must understand, brethren, in order to say, well, what, did God just come up with these things to tell you to love him so he can feel important or to love your neighbor because he's a nicey, nice guy? No, God has made us in his image and God is building what? a family. And as Mr. Armstrong used to explain, every ancient nation was one family grown great. 
Asher had children, and of course Jacob had 12 sons, and they had more hundreds and thousands and finally millions of sons and daughters and became the peoples of Israel, millions of them. And now they're scattered all across northwestern Europe and Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the Anglo-Saxon peoples in South Africa and so on. The descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, one man grown great. That was the kingdom. That's what God is doing. He is building a family grown great, which will finally become the kingdom of God. Jesus said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You're heirs to the kingdom in the church today. You're begotten sons of God, but you're not fully born of God until the resurrection. You're not fully in the kingdom until the resurrection, until you are a spirit being born of God, then you will have the authority to assist Christ in ruling over the nations of this earth and later perhaps whole planets out there. So it's one family grown great and God wants His sons to be like He is. So therefore, He wants us to reflect Him. He wants us to reflect His character. And with that in mind, you can see that every single one of the human beings around you, male and female, old and young, everything else, are what? They are potential gods. They are potential gods. And they are potential brothers and sisters to you, in a sense, through all eternity. And so you need to learn to love them now because you're going to have to get along with them. Now, hopefully they will grow in grace and knowledge. I can't stand this guy now. Well, that may be partly your problem. Think about it. Might be partly your problem. Might be partly his problem too. But all of us are going to have to grow to where we don't have those human antagonisms and where we will be able to understand each other, forgive each other, love each other, get along with each other forever and ever and ever and ever. And say, I can't stand it. Well, then you won't be around. <laughs> I'm sorry. You've got to get over it, whatever it is, to actually love these other people because they're going to be there if they stay in God's church. And you will be there if you stay in God's church because God is building a family. That's why he gives these laws to love him. He can't have potential Satans out there saying, well, I want to do this and here's my opinion. Here's the way I look at things and I'm going to go around here and I will ascend to the heights and I will be like the most high. Remember, Satan said that Lucifer before he was cast back down the first time. That attitude of rebellion, competition, overthrowing God. And then saying, well, I don't like this person. I don't like that person. I'm being all sensitive about everybody about you. So they've got to conform to some ideal thing before you can really like them and love them. No, they don't. No, they don't. We need to love every human being because he or she is made in the image of God. Now, you may have some that you prefer to be with socially a little bit more than others. And that's not wrong. But on the other hand, you'd better not forsake the others. And there are many scriptures showing us that too because you want to serve everybody. What if Jesus, who was perfect, said, well, I want to just socialize with my kind of people? Well, he would have been a lonesome fellow. <laughs> there, there wasn't anyone like him. He was the only converted human being on earth. You see, looking at him in spirit, let alone all the other qualities he had. He had to learn to love and, and associate with Doubting Thomas and uh, the other guys, and Peter was kind of obstreperous at times, and, you know, said, well, I don't know, I won't let them kill you, and I'll beat them up, and yet when Peter got scared, uh, he denied him Christ three times. 
and cursed and swore, and later Christ forgave him and put him as the leader over the other apostles. He was the leader. Yet John, who was more quiet and introspective, was closest to Christ in a personal sense, the one who leaned in his bosom on that Passover evening. And Peter even asked John, you ask him, knowing John was closer personally. But God, Christ didn't have play favorites. He could see that John had more of a depth of love and understanding, but did not have the kind of leadership that Peter had. So Peter was there better as the leader in that administrative situation. But John was better there as a deep spiritual advisor and friend. In fact, in the beginning chapters of Acts, you remember how often as Peter and John were together several times, Peter and John, Peter and John, or Peter, James, and John. And in the, the Gospels, is especially Peter, James, and John together. So you have to understand that. We've got to love everybody. You don't just love those that are like you are. Otherwise, you'll be in trouble. You won't have many to love if you kind of begin to narrow things down. We're all going to have to love every human being in God's image because every human being is our potential brother and sister forever. Why do these two commandments again? Is God just being nicey-nice? No, He's building a family. And God wants to be sure of our loyalty and he wants to know of our ability to cooperate, to work together, and to love each other forever in a divine family forever and ever based on love, kindness, warmth, and service. And if we're willing to work together in that attitude now, then he can know we'll be much more likely to work together that way forever and ever and not be constantly picking at one another, upset at one another, or whatever it is. Think. That's why God gave these great commandments, not because he's just nice nice but for this purpose. He is building a family to last throughout all eternity. And these two basic principles have got to be extant in order to make that family function. Now, brethren, turn back to 1 John to think more about this personal love that we ought to have for one another. Turn back to 1 John near the beginning, near the end, I mean, of your New Testament, just before Revelation. The first epistle of John and let's begin reading here in chapter 4 and verse 8. I'd like to read it all <laughs> because this whole book is talking about love, but I'll read some specific passages. 1 John 4, verse 8. It says in verse, uh, well, let's go to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is, uh, love is of God. And everyone who loves is born, but remember the word ought to be translated, absolutely ought to be, if you check the context, it all comes from the same basic Greek word, genau, Genesis. It can mean either born or begotten. And all the authorities know that. Some Bibles will translate born or begotten back and forth, the same word over and over, depending on the, 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 the uh, uh, translation you're reading. They know it all comes from the same word. And whether it's begotten or born depends on the context, what it's talking about. Well, here, in this life, we're only begotten of God. So that's what it's talking about. But uh, he, he says, everyone who loves is begotten of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Every human being is made in God's image. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. He showed us that love, first of all, and sent His Son to be the payment or the propitiation for our sins. 
Christ shed blood paid for my sins and your sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, you say, these people are bad. How can I love them? Well, what if God felt that way? How can he love you? Because none of you are perfect. Sorry about that. <laughs> I don't know all your sins, but unless you're an angel unaware, why, that's the way we are. We're human. So, so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God is able to love us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. How come he could say that? Because they saw Christ, referring to Dr. I covered that, of course, in this recent article on uh, who is the God of the Old Testament in Tomorrow's World magazine. There were two gods, and they did get to see two persons in God. They did get to see Christ. So that's what it's talking about here, but not God the Father, back in Exodus chapter 24. So no one has seen God, obviously, meaning God the Father, at any time. Even Moses saw, of course, Yahweh, or the one who became Christ, but no one has seen God the Father at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, you see. That's part of it. We've got to love one another to have Him living His life in us. And His love has been perfected in us. That is, if we're really converted and growing. By this we know that we abide in Him. How do we know that we abide in God? And He in us, because He's given us of His Spirit. If we have been truly repentant, and each of you has to examine yourself. Were you truly repentant when you were baptized in being willing to make a total surrender and a covenant with your Creator to give your life to God, no holes barred, and you really meant it, and then you were baptized as an outward symbol and sincerely of your old self dying and burying the old self under the water, then God would promise or does promise to give you His Holy Spirit. And you can sense that extra help that comes inside of you that you did not have before. But He and us, because He's given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. Well, you've got to confess that in truth, of course, like Jesus Himself said in Luke 6, 46. Luke 6, 46. Write that right here in your margin. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You've got to really mean it and understand it. And we've seen and testified that the Father set the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, and God abides in him, and he is God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. So here we're back to that. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. You've got to abide in love. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. If we really know God, and walk with God, and love God, and fellowship with God, then we'll know that God is with us in every trial, in every test, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We never give up and start to hate others. We never give up and say, God, God, I hate you. You're not here. Why you didn't do this or that? Because we know God and we're acquainted with God. So we may have boldness because as he is, so are we. There is no fear in love. Perfect love, of course. We don't have perfect love. But real love casts out fear. As I've said before in sermons, 
just using a quick example that's pretty obvious. Over the years, they don't have many executions here in the United States anymore, but every now and then we would hear of some, and often they would show that at the last minute, some murderer, rapist, he may have murdered five women and raped them all or done this or that and dumped their body in the road or something. And who was there with him, right, as he was going to the electric chair, maybe virtually holding his hand just before they put the needle into his arm? His mama. Some of them were literally crying, Mama, Mama. They were sorry. They weren't repentant. Repent means to change, but they were scared. And the one that loved them to the end, you see, perfect love casts out fear. Other men might not have even wanted to go into the death cell with them thinking they were bad or something, but their mother would never give up on them in many cases. That perfect love that God exemplifies often in the love of a mother. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. If you fear God like a monster, you know, then you have not been made perfect in love. If you fear the world and fear others, you obviously don't want to just cause trouble and make, make them come on you. But in the end, you know, they're just mixed up human beings. And you could say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like Jesus did. He didn't fear them in the sense of, boy, they're going to get me and I'm going to have to get back or I hate them and so on. He just had to realize who they are. They're mixed up human beings and they don't know God and God will have mercy on them later. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. And he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. God loved us when we were sinners. And we've got to learn to love our fellow sinners because all of you are sitting out there. You're all sinners. <laughs> and you brethren listening in, you can't throw tomatoes at me from Australia, but you're all sinners over there. <laughs> I'm kidding, but not really because they're all sinners. <laughs> okay. But we've all got to forgive our fellow sinners because we're all sinners. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. See, oh, I love God, but I just can't stand these other people in the church. Well, why can't you stand them? What is your problem? That is your problem, not their problem. They may have human nature, but if it gets down to that attitude, it's your problem. I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You've got to have that love for every human being, knowing that God himself emptied himself and came to die for this other person, and this other person is going to be your brother or sister throughout all eternity, perhaps. And this command we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So we've got to have that attitude and that kind of love, brethren, that's very, very important to grasp that fact. Now I want to turn back to John, the Gospel of John, if you would, chapter 15. The Gospel of John this time and uh, chapter 15 here. And I try to catch... Oh, here it is. My marker. I put these markers up here and sometimes they fumble around or get turned over where I can't see them. I can always beat you to the next scripture because I have my markers. <laughs> in John chapter 15 and beginning in verse 10, Jesus Christ is speaking. 
If you keep my commandments, plural, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Of course, he kept all the commandments and then Jesus validated the Ten Commandments for us as we know over and over said we're to keep the same thing because he, they originated with God the Father but came through Christ. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Here's a special one. That you love one another as I have loved you. What's new about, what's special about that? Because his life magnified it. Love one another as I have loved you. And if you read the Gospels carefully, go back and forth and back and forth through the Gospels, which I hope you'll do during your Christian life, so you read them again and again and again, at various times in various ways, you begin to see the mind of Christ in a special way, and you begin to see how he exemplified love. How he served people all day long, how he helped them, how he helped others even when he was suffering, how he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and how in love and in kindness, though, and in wisdom, he corrected others sometimes. That's not a lack of love. If parents love their little children, they will chasten them. God commands that, as a matter of fact. He that spares his rod hates his son, it says. You love him less is the term, but if you don't chasten him properly to wake him up while there's time. But God loves us, but God loved Peter. But Peter, he told Peter, right after he said, on this rock I will build my church, and the Catholics say that when Peter became the infallible Pope, <laughs> right after that, remember, go read it back in Matthew 16, he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the things of God, but of men. Because Satan, Peter was saying, they won't kill you, and I'm going to stop them, and I'll punch them out or chop their head off. He had his sword and all that. Christ corrected Peter strongly on two or three occasions. He corrected some of the others. And he corrected the religious leaders of his day, frankly, even more than the others. He said, you snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That's why he, what he called the religious leaders of his day, because they had a double guilt. They understood, partly at least, a lot of the truth, and they went against it, and that made them even more guilty than the other person. And so Christ, was he mad at them personally? No, he was God. They were little ants down here. He knew that compared to God. But he was trying to get through their thick heads and wake them up. And he spoke very strongly. So true love does correct. And then true love does try to do the right thing. As I've said, for instance, in our office or in the work of God, we may move someone from here to there or change their job or even terminate someone on occasion. We must never do that because we hate someone or have some spite. But if someone just doesn't fit somewhere... You're actually hurting that person by putting him in where he can't succeed. You're hurting him because he's going to be frustrated and frustrated and he can't make it and he's a square peg in a round hole and all the rest of it. So it's better to put people where they belong and change them into some other job or let them do something else and whatever the case may be. So there are things like that that, ought, that are done in love and yet... The, the motive should be love, not kidding ourselves, but the motive should be love in all these situations. Love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Are we laying down our life for the others in the church? Are we laying down our life for others in the United States, in Britain, Canada, Australia? We ought to be in our attitude and our prayers and in doing our part in God's work to reach those people while there is opportunity. That's part of God's love. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, you don't have to do whatever I command you to be my friend necessarily, although you should follow me as I follow Christ. But here was God speaking, because if you don't follow the way of God, you see, he never made a mistake in what he asked his friends. Then you're cutting yourself off from what is right. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. You see, Christ had a great deal of love for these fellows. He really did. You think about it, because at the very end of his life in that last prayer, the only last complete prayer Jesus gave is in John 17, where he said, I want that my disciples be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. And back in Luke 22, he told Peter and the other apostles, he said, I will give you kingdoms. I'll give you thrones that you can sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He gave them those specific jobs. He planned that out. He wanted them to have that opportunity. He wanted them around. He wanted them to be with him. He'd shared an experience, the great God who said, let there be light, and there was light. He'd had that experience with these 12 young Jews, young men, helping each other in and out of the big, big fishing boats and climbing the hills together, sleeping out under the stars together, having bowl sessions, so to speak, together. And I'm sure they did around the campfires and many other things because Jesus was not a nicey-nice guy walking around, you know, like this, holy, holy, holy all day. You don't get that out of it at all. He was real. He was a young man, a vigorous young man. So he shared a lot with them, but because he'd had that unique experience, he wanted them around. I want them to share eternity with me in that particular way, and he loved them, and he wanted them to be around. And so he was willing to lay down his life for his friends, and he asked us to do the same thing. And he said, later, I've called you friends because I've told you everything about God's plan, and yet out were his friends because he's put all of this in the Bible for us. And when you really understand it, brethren... And after about 60 years in the church of God, I've come to realize more profoundly than I did at the beginning, and I can't prove it to you all of a sudden. Each of you has to go through your own odyssey to understand it, to figure it out, to prove it. But this book is the revelation of the mind of God, and you'll find God's mind is stamped right in this book over and over and over in the small things as well as in the big things. As I've said, the doctors used to make fun of circumcision, now they're saying it will save millions of lives in Africa particularly, but elsewhere if the males are circumcised in order not to give their wife these venereal diseases and all the other stuff. They used to think that breastfeeding, I remember my own mother used to read stuff all the time, the latest on this and that, and they were saying, well, breastfeeding is not good, it's better to have this formula and blah, blah, blah. Well, now they're back the other way. They've come to realize that God made it. They don't say God, of course. They don't like to use that term, most of them today. A few good doctors will, of course. But that God made it so that a mother's own milk, somehow, that baby came right out of her body. And the particular kind of milk she has is better for her own baby than anything that any scientist could ever come up with. 
they're finally beginning to get it. <laughs> it takes a while, even for the scientists, when it involves something about God and what God has done. But you and I can get it ahead of time if we're willing to prove those things, even little things. Those are not the major things. I'm just saying down to the smallest things, you'll find the mind of God is revealed in this book. So he has revealed all these things from the Father. You did not choose me, verse 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. God wants us to go and bear fruit. You all know what I mean by that, certainly in our own personal lives, but also getting together and helping in the work of God and have a fruit that we're going to reach thousands and increasing hundreds of thousands and increasing millions. And finally, hundreds and hundreds of millions of human beings will know that there is a great creator God who is working out a purpose here below. And by the specific prophecies we give them, that will come, help them come to see that God is real, not just a nicey, nice, sentimental idea. And they'll begin to understand the purpose of human existence and be willing to obey that God. And when the things happen in the big prophecies, more tens of thousands may begin to be converted even in the last year or two of our ministry. And then 144,000 will come out of great tribulation. Why? Is God going to speak to him from heaven? Well, perhaps some of these things will come from the two witnesses and others, but they will have heard it year after year from us, and we will have helped them in that way to understand the fruit of our work today. That's one way we're to love our neighbor, by getting God's message out, in which God commands us to do, of course. So we have to think of all these ways. Brethren, here, if you're taking notes, try to get this down. This can help you, perhaps. A definition. Christian love is. True Christian love is obedience and worship toward God and outflowing concern for mankind. Outflowing concern, maybe I should say, for all mankind. Of course, you know what I mean. Every human being. Those are the two aspects of real love. You have to have that worship and adoration and obedience to God and many other ways you could magnify that, but God shows you that love involves obedience, and He tells you that again and again uh, in the Bible. Turn back to 1 John again, and back in 1 John, as you know, it says in chapter 5 and verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Plural. Not just the first few, but all of them. This is. That's what love is that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not terrible and hard and all that. As I've said, people are always trying to say the Protestant argument is the Catholic, the Sabbath is a burden. Well, frankly, when you really understand it, it ought to be the easiest commandment to keep. Because all week long, 24 hours a day for seven days, you're not to lust, you're not to hate, you're not to do this and that all day long. You're not to lie or get drunk or do all kinds of these other things. But one day a week, you're supposed to rest. That's a lot easier than doing all this other stuff all the other days. It ought to be in that sense the easiest. And especially if everyone were starting to do it, then at soon in tomorrow's world, it will be the easiest commandment to keep by far as it was for those of us who, when we lived at Ambassador College, now let's go to Romans 12, brethren, to see more about how this love is expressed. Romans uh, chapter 12 at this point. As you know, I've often called this the Christian living chapter. 
Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 we call the love chapter. And Romans 12 may be called the Christian living chapter, although the whole New Testament is Christian living, of course. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a lively sacrifice or living and some say it's better translated lively, alert, you see, not a dead sacrifice, but a lively sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your intelligent or reasonable service. It's not intelligent anymore to offer a dead animal. God wants us to give our whole lives to God. That is our sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, you see, by putting it to the test in your life. That's how you prove. You prove a team of horses. You prove this and that. You put it to the test. You do it. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And that's part of our human problem. People are puffed up. They feel more important. And now we're the better, you know, we're the good people or we're the superior people or whatever attitude they may have. We must not have that. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. Well, in our human body, we have eyes and ears and teeth and we all have hands and feet and the feet can't do what the hands can do and the mouth can't do what the ears can do and so on. We all need these various functions. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You see the analogy here of the body and also of a family in a sense. God has each of us in a family and we are supporting each other. One person can do this and do, others can do that. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having then gifts according to the grace, you see are the gifts that are given us. Grace means in that sense can mean gifts as well as kind of repetitive here, but the mercy that's given to us. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. And frankly, the word prophecy or prophesy in the New Testament much more often is used for inspired preaching than just foretelling some future event, by the way. So it can mean inspired preaching. You preach according to the proportion of your faith. Sometimes a new minister gets up and he's quite unsure of things, and I understand that. But when you've been around for a while and you've seen it over and over, you can say, I have seen this. This is real. And you have a depth of faith in what you're preaching that you might not have had 20 or 30 years ago or 40 or whatever. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. Or who has the gift of teaching, use that gift to teach, to make things clear to others. Or he who exhorts in exhortation. Some people are good at exhortation. I, apparently, I'm fairly good at that. I, I hope I'm good at teaching too and other things. But, you know, exhortation means you better ought to <laughs> say you better do this. So you've got to tell people what to do and how to do it in the right way. He who gives with liberality. Over the years, we've had a number of wealthy people. We used to have in Worldwide, I think, 30 or 40 or 50 millionaires. They weren't Joe, they weren't uh, Bill Gates type millionaires, but they were do two, four, eight million or something, counting everything they had. And they could give a lot more and some would give more and some would give less. 
but they had the gift of giving in the sense they had more capacity to give in that way. But the one who has capacity can give. And if you have the capacity to give of your time, by the way, some of you widows and others that don't have full-time jobs, you could pray more. You know, Paul speaks about Epaphroditus who prayed fervently for them, laboring, laboring for them in prayer. There are various ways of giving, giving. And God wants us to give liberally. He who leads with diligence. Well, I've got to do that also to do the best I can to get on top of what's happening around here and try to lead the work in the right direction. But I have excellent help with Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale helping me and Mr. Apartin and Mr. Crockett and others helping me so that we get multitude of counsel in the decisions. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Don't forgive others grudging. Well, I'll forgive you maybe, but maybe. Okay, no maybe. You forgive them from the heart. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. It's not wrong to abhor what is evil. Say, that is awful. That is horrible. But on the other hand, you don't have to be mad at the person. Be mad at the thing and not at the person. Cling to what is good. Deeply appreciate the fact that you've been called and you know God. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Have that kindly affectionate brotherly feeling in the church. With brotherly love. We're talking about love, the second commandment, to love your neighbor. Have kindly affection to one another. Do little affectionate things and try to have that attitude. This is my brother. This is my sister. And we don't have the holy kiss here in the church. They used to kiss each other on the cheek. And in America, I think if I gave all the pretty young girls a kiss, they must, one of them might slap me, so I have to be careful. <laughs> now, Mr. Partin gets away with that some. I'm kidding. He doesn't kiss them, but he has Debbie and, and Merritt Madeline, and even my secretary deserts me once in a while and comes over, and they're all hugging Mr. Partin in the hallway. And I tell them, well, you better be careful. This old man's going to run off to Switzerland with you. And they look at me and they say, we'd like that. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Mr. Partian's out of the teenage years now, by the way. He's, he's up in his 90s somewhere. Anyway, so, uh, but anyway, it's okay. But we should have that affection and warmth that we express, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, don't kind of be lagging, but be zealous in the way you serve others in the work of God. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, always praying for one another because you love one another. Pray for one another. Someone has a problem, do you get mad at them? Pray about it. Get down on your knees. Distribute it to the needs of the saints. Give to others in the church and help them. God talks throughout the Bible about giving to the poor, and God will give you back if you give to the poor. And brethren, let me just say this. I have a little digression here. We've had a part of our executive lunch two or three times. I brought this up, and we realized we need to do more, and we're not perfect in the way we're doing it. Even talked about starting a foundation, but we probably don't need to have a foundation if we can just do more of it through the church. But we're going to get a lot more poor people right here in our local church and a lot more poor people all over as these terrible uh, recessions continue. And finally, we plunge into another Great Depression. We're going to have to help each other. 
And I hope all of us can try to think about that and do that. We have a used clothing thing here, and we have other, we have a love fund, I think, and other funds. So all of us try, should try to participate and to do the best we can. That's good for us. That's good for us. Given to hospitality, we ought to try to help others over or take them out or share ourselves with them. I know we can't all have everybody over. My wife and I have had two or three hundred people to our house in the last few years because of groups and, and individuals as well. But as we get older, she's up in her 60s now, and I'm up in my almost 80, so we slow down. We can't have everybody over all the time, but we do want to have others. And all of us, you who are younger, I know out in Ambassador, we had all kinds of young couples in the church back then that were in their 30s and 40s, and they would regularly have people over. I mean, some of them almost every Saturday night. I remember Mr. Some of you know Mr. Sidney Hegbold, who was with us up until his death, and his older brother, Selmer, was out there, lived in South Pasadena, and they had a kind of an old house, but it was okay, and renting, and they'd have people over every Saturday night, it seemed like that. When I was a young bachelor, well, we'd all drop by, and there was the gang, you know, and sometimes you get a free meal and uh, visit, and some of the younger pretty girls were there, and the ugly fellows were there, too, you know, <laughs> kid around with them, and uh, we all enjoyed that. They were so kind. They had kind of an open house atmosphere kind of an open house atmosphere, very giving of themselves. So we want to have that attitude and build that as best we can. They were just back in their, I suppose, 40s at that time. Distributing to the needs, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Don't hate them, just ask God to help them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, share, have that empathy. They're brethren. If they're hurting, you hurt with them. Be of the same mind one toward another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. I've seen people even in God's church who have the attitude that we're the beautiful people and they want to act a certain way, dress a certain way, act superior. I know out in Pasadena it was that way too much, frankly, and God let that church come apart for many, many reasons. That's perhaps the least of the reasons, but that was a reason, I'm sure, because we had a whole bunch of individuals who would go up front and they would stand in front of others and, and uh, oh, you're wearing a St. John knit today or you're wearing a this or that and brag about what they're wearing and maybe how much it costs and kind of show off to each other. And they were the beautiful people. Well, I've never been very beautiful. I understand that. I've never won any beautiful any beauty contests. <laughs> but we in the ministry try to wear decent suits so we look okay on TV and when we're preaching. But we'd better not get a big attitude about that to where we're not able to associate with anybody anytime and help them and give to them and serve them. And I tend to wear some of my old suits even too much. I was kidding around. My wife didn't want me to tell this. <laughs> I, I wore a suit the other day, and I was asking someone, uh, you know, a sports outfit, and they said, how do you like my new sports jacket? Oh, that, that looks nice. And, well, that's a quarter of a century old. Oh, really? And had the Dorman's stamp right inside. Dorman's Winthrop used to be a, a high-class. It was high-class uh, wholesale uh, outfit over in Hollywood. They didn't spend money on advertising except one ad, one ad once a week in the Los Angeles Times. I, I heard various TV and radio and ask others. That was it. 
But you go in there, they didn't have a lot of fancy fixtures and a lot of big salesmen hovering over you. They just had row after row of seat suits, high-class suits, and all were 30% off. And then if you got there once or twice a year sale, then it would be 50 or 60% off. Wow. <laughs> and you could get the better suits. So that's what I often did. And I got some heavy suits just before, uh, you know, this work started. And I spent eight and a half years in San Diego. And I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't need all those suits, and those heavy ones in San Diego. So they stayed in plastic bags in the, in the closet. So they're just like new. So I'm not ashamed to wear them. <laughs> If you're ashamed to see me in them, you told me about it. <clears throat> I'll punch you in the nose. No, I can't. <laughs> but we, we, we want to be humble in the right way, not just in what we say, of course. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay to no one evil for evil. Don't try to get even, brethren. Try to learn that lesson. Don't try to get even. If it is possible, uh, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Try to have peace. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Again, that's an attitude of resentment. You hate. I'm going to get back. I'm going to get even. Well, don't have that. You say, well, you're all perfect, maybe, Mr. Meredith, and you never had that to fight. Yes, I did. I did have that. I grew up in a mining town. Most of you don't know what a mining town is. But when they had miners in those days working with their hands, digging with picks and shovels and getting drunk on Saturday night, and you had Camp Crowder, Missouri, uh, 18 miles south, uh, the largest signal corps base on earth during the war with 55,000 soldiers and non-coms and a whole bunch of them swarming around up in... Pa up in uh, Joplin, not Pasadena, started <laughs> on Saturday night. Uh, we, we, we had lots of temptation to punch people in the nose. And I was in a number of fights and, and, uh, and growing up in that atmosphere. But I had to overcome that. So I didn't have a quick temper. And so I learned to control that. I had to fight to overcome it. But you've got to do that. And with God's help, you can do that. So don't avenge yourselves. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get even. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Learn to know that God is real, He will take care of it. And just say, May God help you to understand, fellow. And don't try to preach at Him, but maybe God will help him to understand later if you pray about it. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, what do you do? You love him, feed him, help him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Eventually, he'll feel very, very guilty that he did you ill, and yet you turned around and did him good. Do not be overcome by evil, for you respond in kind. I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to get even. I'm going to punch you in the nose. But overcome evil with good. And that's not easy. That's not easy. And I don't do that perfectly. None of us does. But this is what God tells us to try to do and begin to do with God's help. And so we need to think about it, try to inculcate this in our lives. All of us try to learn to be givers, giving of ourselves and preaching, teaching, writing, helping, visiting, having people over, serving one another, building a larger family in the church of God in every way we can. I could give dozens of examples. I just want to give one for time's sake. But I remember I usually talk about people after they're, they're dead, so I won't brag on any of you that are living here. But Mr. and Mrs. Roy Hammer 
were members back in Texas, and they later uh, were very prominent because uh, their daughter Shirley married Ted Armstrong and uh, so on. But long before that, they could not have dreamed of that. I, I knew that. I knew them two or three years before that ever happened or they could have thought of such a thing. They were giving. And we had the feast at Big Sandy partly because of them, because they were so serving and because Roy Hammer gave part of his land that he owned to the church of God and therefore we could have a feast site and later Buckhammer, his older or next to older son, whichever one he was, we called him Buck. And uh, he gave a whole, he had even more land and he gave a whole bunch of it which became the majority of the property of Ambassador College and Lake Loma. It was named Lake Loma after Mrs. Herbert Armstrong. Her name was Loma, so we named it Lake Loma. But the hammers were the reason the college was in East Texas. It wasn't an ideal location any other way, frankly. It was right near the rattlesnakes and copperheads and water moccasins and alligators. They used to have an alligator. Mr. Ames probably remembers the name of it. But anyway, they had an alligator, and they, they gave a name to it. They left it alone. And all of a sudden, some of the dogs and cats begin to disappear from the faculty, and they all... all we know what happened to them. They all began to... This the faculty that had dogs and cats out by the, by the lake. The alligator would just get them. And, of course, they were afraid maybe some little child would wander back there. So they got rid of the alligator. But at any rate, uh, we, we had that property. And that was a, a wonderful thing. The hammers gave. And when people would call down about the Feast of Tabernacles, Mrs. Hammer was a one-woman whole answering service and help them and talk to them and the hammers then would give and Mr. Hammer would take them and show them, you know, where to where to park their car, where to pitch their tent and the people they would have people in their homes. When Raymond and I came through in the baptizing tour where they just insisted that we have a meal and then Mrs. Hammer had had boys who were older than we are, so it wasn't like some young woman. She was a mama and grandmother and she said, well, you boys give me your dirty clothes. I know you boys. She said, your, prob your clothes are not very clean. Oh, no, we don't want some. She said, no, you do. I know you. I've got boys older than you. Well, okay. So we did. We thought, this is great. <laughs> so we had the cleanest clothes we'd had in weeks. She put them in her own place. And we had to wash them out, the soap, over a, a faucet in a little old motel. We couldn't get them very. And she did all kinds of things. Every time we came through there, she was giving, helping, serving. And they kept on doing that. And they gave, of course, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of land before it was all over at a time the dollar was worth a lot more than it is today. But they'll never be forgotten by many of us older brethren, and they'll never be forgotten by God. That's the most important thing. They were serving. They had warmth in their personality, and they were very hospitable to have you over and help you. And they gave and gave and gave their lives to others. So we're grateful for that. We all ought to develop that attitude and the family spirit in the church of God. Now back in Leviticus, turn back here. I'm turning here because, brethren, this is what Jesus was quoting from. In a sense, he was quoting from himself, of course. But when he said, love your neighbors yourself, some people think the golden rule originated in the New Testament. No, it originated with God the Father and came through Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, first of all. But how do you understand how to love your neighbor in detail? Well, by the New Testament, but sometimes you forget how it ought to be applied. 
I'm just telling you again, just a little example, not to spend the sermon too much on this, but go back, brethren, and read the middle chapters of Leviticus and read Deuteronomy chapter 12 through 28. Read the statutes, and that tells you the letter of the law way as to how to love your neighbor and how to love God. You see, back in in Leviticus 19, verse 9, he said, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the field. Don't just try to get every stalk of grain, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard. You see, don't just take every grape, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor. You see, the principle here is to help the poor. Now, most of us don't have fields and we don't have vineyards, but the principle is to leave something extra, use something extra to help the poor people. And the stranger, who's the stranger? Well, we have brethren coming into uh, our church area that maybe don't have a job yet. Sometimes we have literally, uh, you know, uh, uh, people that are from another country that are here and they don't have a job or have a harder time, we should try to help them. I am the eternal, your God. You shall not steal. You're not to ever steal. Tells you in detail how to love your neighbor. Don't steal from him, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. God hates lying. He hates it. Even at the very end of the Bible, back there in Revelation, he says the one who is kept out of the holy city is he that loves and makes a lie. If God can't trust you, how can he know what you're going to do when you're in his kingdom? So if you're a liar, you're just undermining every other thing that you might do that's good. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name. Don't take God's name lightly. I know the world does that all the time. You see these comedy shows and they make fun of God and Christ and the way they just use the name and toss it around and double entendres. And it's damnable. We don't hate them. They're just stupid, frankly. And also, they're blind. They're not called of God. You shall not defraud your neighbor. Don't cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You will not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. Be careful of people who are deaf or blind. They need your help. Don't be smart. They can say, well, who cares about him? But you shall fear your God. I am the ever-living one. He's letting you know I'm concerned for those people. These young men come up and help me on and off the stage, and I appreciate that. I'm so tired sometimes after preaching. I might fall down if I didn't have some help. I started to slip. I remember the first time I got up here when I went down because I didn't realize how tired I'd be right after the sermon. And so it's good for me to think that. What about these people that are totally crippled? What about these people that are totally blind? Remember the man that felt bad for himself because he, 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 was, he, he was crippled in his legs or something, and then he, he met the man who had no legs, <laughs> you know. Some of these paraplegics or these people that have had their limbs cut off in the war. You shall no, do all, no injustice in judgment. Try your very, very best to get all the facts. Now, people don't always appreciate that, But you should try to get all the facts and be impartial and be fair and say it the right way. You shall not be partial to the poor. Don't just help him because he's low down. Nor honor the person of the mighty. Someone thinks he's important while he can't bother us. Yes, we can. If you're doing wrong, you have to have the same judgment too. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. 
And we should try to do that with all of our hearts sincerely. You shall not go about as a talebearer. And you're to not say, well, did you know this and that and so on. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. If you carry this attitude of hate and resentment, what will it do? Well, often your neighbor doesn't even know you have this attitude. It doesn't hurt him unless you do get mad later and kill him. It could be the spirit of murder. But in the meantime, it eats you. It eats you. It eats you. And you will come down with high blood pressure or stomach ulcers or cancer or something because it's eating you. Sometimes it's not what you're eating, but what's eating you, you see, that's the problem. So these are living laws. That book, None of These Diseases, brought that out very vividly. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance. Again, we saw that in Romans 12. Nor bear any grudge. Don't go around with grudges against the children of your people. But here it is, the golden rule. Verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How would I want others to love me? If I were a liar, would would I want others just to look the other way and never tell me? No, that wouldn't help me. It's better for someone to tell me, a minister to correct me and say, stop lying, you can't be in the kingdom, John, if you're going to be a liar. Or if I'm committing adultery, if I'm getting drunk or doing this or that, it's better to have someone wake you up as long as they do it in a right way. You say, well, they don't do it in a right way. Well, I don't think I've ever been corrected by a perfect person in a perfect way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody does anything perfectly, but we should try to do it in love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the ever-living one. So these are all the details about how to love your neighbor as yourself that are given in these passages and in the Old Testament. Now, brethren, turn to Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah chapter 38, and here's something that is a wonderful example two or three have used over the last few years, and I'm I just going to tell the story. Most of you know about it. Back in Jeremiah chapter 38, uh, it tells about Ebed-Melech, this Ethiopian eunuch, in the king's palace who heard that Jeremiah had been put in the slime pit and was going to die. And he went to the king and did that take some courage? You better believe it because the king had allowed him to be put there. He said, please, this prophet of God is about to die if we leave him there. So Ebed-Melech had to have faith in God and Ebed-Melech had to have a lot of kindness and love. There are ways you love your neighbor even in times of stress even in times of danger. And we're going to have a lot of perilous times. If I'm thrown in jail and they're down on us and hate us, will all of you be afraid to come and visit me because you might get in trouble? Well, if you come, you might get in trouble, but you might come anyway. I'm not saying you need to, and I don't plan to be thrown in jail, but in the work I'm in, it's very possible. Paul spent about five out of his last six years in prison. And Jeremiah spent a lot of time in prison here near the end of his life on two or three different occasions. So they got him out. Abed-Melech took these other men and got him out at the risk of his life, probably in doing that. And God noted that later on after the Babylonians had conquered the city and taken over while Jeremiah was told in verse 16 of chapter 39... Jeremiah 39, go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed on that day before you. 
but I will deliver you in that day. So this is before the final fall. And you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you're afraid, for I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you. Why? Because you have put your trust. You have put your trust in me. We have to put our trust in God someday to know that God is there, but also be motivated by love, loving your neighbor to do the work of God, even though it may be dangerous to do so at the end, and to go visit our neighbor in prison or to go help others in difficult times. We have to have the love of our neighbor and also the trust in God working together in that way. All right, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. This is, as you know, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 1. I'd like to give a whole sermon on this. Maybe you should do. Don't have any other topic, just that one chapter sometime. I, I got that chance in the Epistles of Paul class. Sometimes they just take a whole class just on this one chapter. That was good. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become as a sounding brass or clanging cymbal, just someone beating on a, on a washtub. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries... You know, a lot of new people in the church, and I've had some young men that were later elders and very smart and everything, but they just all enthralled with all the details of prophecy. I think of one man that was a little older than me then, but still young, that was all enthralled and had all these charts, and, and I had to explain to him, well, I, I can't give you an answer for all of that because you've been, he admitted he'd been studying it for over a year, and I wasn't familiar with all of his chart, and I could give him the big picture, but I couldn't refute everything. I said the big thing is to love God, love your neighbor, get the big picture and obey God and know the big overall plan. Well, later he did, and he came to Ambassador College and became an evangelist. But even though you had all knowledge of prophecy, all the details, would that help you? Yes, if you had God's love. But if you do not have God's love and you get vain about that one thing and get sidetracked, then that technical knowledge of this or that won't help you. You've got to have Christ living His life in you. That's the key above everything else, far above everything else. So anyway, it's nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned... You'd give your body to be burned? Yes, some of the Buddhist monks have done that over there in time past as a civil rights protest, frankly. They weren't really loving. They were just showing, I'm just going to kill myself. I'll show them. God does not honor that. That's not outflowing concern in the right way. I'm nothing. It profits me nothing. Love, here's a key, two verses together. Love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't blow its top real quick. Love does not do that. Love does not envy. Some people are always envying others and wanting to be like they are, have what they have. Love does not parade itself. It's not always showing off. Some people just like to show off and be the center of attention. It's not puffed up. Love is not puffed up thinking I'm superior, you see. We're the, we're the smart folks. We're the in crowd or whatever. Does not behave rudely. Love tries to be kind and gracious, does not seek its own. That is perhaps the key passage in the whole chapter, 
Love does not seek its own. In other words, love is outflowing concern toward others, more concerned about helping others than just what, what do I get out of it? And I've had many people ask me, frankly, counseling about various things and problems where they would literally turn and say, well, what do I get out of this? I said, well, you'll get eternal life in the kingdom of God forever, <laughs> among other things, but I can't promise you to give you a big job or give you a lot of money, but you'll live forever in the family, of, you know. But anyway, love has this attitude of not seeking its own. It's not provoked. Love doesn't get upset real easily again. Thinks no evil. And the commentaries say this expression means keeps no account of evil. Love does not try to remember all the details of other people's problems and keep recounting them, recounting them, recounting them. There used to be a minister that I knew that had a little black book. And it really was black. The little book was black and he kept it here. And he knew all of the sins, it seemed like, of all the leading ministers. He had one minister that had a bunch of children and he knew about which of his children had abortions and which of his daughters and which of his sons had committed fornication and who got drunk and who did this and that. He had all this stuff. And he was, he was an up-and-coming uh, politician in the church, in the ministry. And he, after he worked for me for a while and worked with me in a certain situation, I began to realize he was telling me this and pulled out his book. I said, you've got this stuff written. Oh, yes, yes, it's important to know about these people. And I okay. I thought, I'll bet I'm in his book. If I get kicked out, then he'll have everything he could get on me too. You see, you get those people. And I didn't have any of those awful things that we talked about, but I had human nature. So, you know, God does not appreciate us getting our little black book and knowing all the details of everybody's sins. Don't do that. God can take care of that. He doesn't need your help. That's bad for you. So do not have that attitude of keeping a track of evil. Do not rejoice in iniquity, or does not, but rejoices in the truth. Rejoice in the truth, the good things. Bears all things, believes all things, that positive attitude, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Outflowing love guided by God because God will never give up on you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So if you know Him, walk with Him, have His love, your love will not fail. But whether they're prophecies, they will fail. Does it mean God's prophecies won't be kept? No. The Greek word can mean not happen or can mean just run out. They won't be around. They'll all be fulfilled someday. Every prophecy in this book will be fulfilled. Then what? There won't be any more prophecies. They'll run out. That's not the important thing, the details of prophecy. The important thing is having Christ live in you and learning how to love your Creator with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself and that outflowing concern, love and kindness and warmth and affection and service to help you be a member of the family of God, worshiping the Father, obeying the Father, walking with God, and loving and helping and serving and giving to and forgiving one another throughout all eternity. So that's very, very important, and we do need that understanding. Now, let's turn here at this point to Ephesians, if you would. Ephesians chapter 4, brethren. Ephesians chapter 4. And I have a whole passage here, but for the sake of time, I'll just read a verse or two. He says in verse 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. 
Don't be cussing and be cheap in the way you talk. For what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Just say what's helpful. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed. Let all bitterness, get rid of this bitterness and hate and selfishness, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. And be kind, learn to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You see, you've got to forgive others for God to forgive you. And the Bible tells you that quite a number of times. That's part of love too, to forgive others. We're the church of the forgiven. All of us have had to be forgiven again and again, and you've got to forgive others. Brethren, we need this attitude so much. Let's turn back to Acts now at this point. Uh, I want to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And uh, I want to begin reading here. This is the latter part of what Paul was telling the Ephesian elders. In the last talk he had with them and perhaps some of their families, he said in verse 29, Acts 20, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He didn't hate them. Paul never did that. But he did warn the church. There's a difference. He's trying to help the church to warn them. And that's what happened. They took over the name of Christianity and they stamped Christianity on outside of a package full of total paganism, which was wrong. Also, from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Some of you own men, he said, will turn aside, which they did. And if I have had men to do this in this work, Mr. Armstrong had quite a number, many more, do that in his work to turn aside. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I pleaded with you, please don't turn aside. Please don't get upset so easily. Please don't let people mislead you. He warned them over and over. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I'm not trying to get what you have, Paul said. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. Paul did not have a whole work where he needed money for radio and television and publications and Internet. So he just had to have enough to take care of himself. And that was a good example. He said in that way, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And he did do that working himself often as a tent maker in the daytime and having Bible studies and visits at night and on weekends that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive so Christ's whole life was that of a giver he gave himself helping, loving, serving, encouraging, sometimes rebuking and correcting for their good, teaching them the truth, and finally laid down his life for us, the total giver. You can't outgive God. And the Apostle Paul was a pretty good giver too. He laid down his life 
serving, helping, building the church all over the Roman Empire, driving himself, told him to press on to the end. And what his his reward? One cold morning, he was marched out, put his head on a block, and had his head chopped off. That's what history tells us. We will see him soon. I'm going to have a lot of fun talking to Paul more than most of you, I think, because I taught the epistles to Paul for so many years, and I can ask him about this and that and something else because he'll be here shortly. But he gave himself in so many ways. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck. You see the attitude of love and kindness, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul must have developed a whole atmosphere of love, of kindness, of a family spirit with him and these other men and their wives and their families. They loved him. And they all went out and they knelt down. All of them, a whole bunch of them, like all of us, we don't do that very often. But there might be a time we'd do that, not be ashamed to do that. They knelt down and prayed together. And they wept and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. And, of course, they kissed on the cheek, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke. They would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. There was a great deal of love in many of the churches that Paul pastored. And there was a great deal of family spirit. And Paul certainly exemplified that and told them to be givers, to love one another, to lay down their lives for one another. And Christ said, we are to lay down our lives for one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to love the great God, our Father, who gives us life and breath, who created everything that is. We worship Him. We adore Him. We are knowing that He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift, every beautiful sunrise and sunset, every beautiful piece of music, every beautiful good thing you see. And anyone else or anything else is there because God put it there and you worship God and you love Him. Love your neighbor as yourself. Lay down your life for Him in the way God tells you to do and serve Him in that way. And then you can be fit to live forever in the family of God, the kingdom of God, and God wants you to learn those two big lessons so you can be there in the family of God forever.